welcome to the latest CMS Pensions Lawcast, focusing on the new Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act. My name is Mark Jenkins and I'm a partner in the pensions team. You'll be also hearing from Catherine Siddes, an associate in the pensions team, as well as Glenn Flannery, a partner in our restructuring and insolvency team. The Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act made lightning quick progress through the parliamentary process, going from introduction in as a bill on the 20th of May to receiving royal assent on 26th of June to introduce changes which were seen by the government as necessary to support businesses as they deal with the economic fallout from COVID-19. However, it's important to state at the outset that the Act is not just a COVID-19 response. There are four permanent changes introduced by the Act, which will transform the way creditors and others interact with businesses in difficulty. It's also a very sizable and complex Act, running to some 250 pages. To that end, we are focusing on some of the aspects of the new legislation that are likely to be most relevant to those involved with DB schemes. Following lobbying from various industry stakeholders, amendments were made to the Act as it passed through Parliament, which goes some way to addressing concerns that the introduction of protective measures, which are intended to help companies manage the damage to their businesses caused by COVID-19, may also have had unintended consequences for both the PPF and DB pension schemes. Given the complexity of the new legislation, we're going to spend a bit of time going through some of the key provisions of the Act. Catherine is going to focus on the moratorium. Glenn will then run through the new insolvency procedure, the restructuring plan, and I'll then conclude by drawing together some of the key issues that come out of the Act from a DB scheme perspective and some practical tips for trustees. Thank you, Mark. As Mark mentioned, I'm going to talk about the pre-insolvency moratorium. I will explain what the moratorium is, the effect it has on both new and existing debts, and how this might apply to different types of pension debts. The moratorium is a temporary measure aimed at giving distressed companies breathing space to focus on how they can best achieve the longer term aim, which is the rescue of the company as a going concern, generally through the restructuring of its debt. During the period of a moratorium, no creditor may bring a winding up action against the company and no enforcement action may be taken in relation to any debt. An independent monitor, who must be an insolvency practitioner, is appointed by the court for the duration of the moratorium to monitor the company's affairs and in particular whether it remains likely that the moratorium will result in the rescue of the company as a going concern. An English company is eligible for a moratorium unless it falls within one of the exclusions set out in the Act. These include companies which have been through an insolvency-related procedure in the last 12 months, for example a company which has been in administration, and also certain types of financial services companies, including banks and insurance companies, and any company which is party to a capital market arrangement with a debt of at least £10 million. To apply for a moratorium, the directors of a company must submit to the court a statement that, in their view, the company is or is likely to become unable to pay its debts. The proposed monitor must also submit a statement that, in their view, it is likely that a moratorium would result in the rescue of the company as a going concern. Arguably, this is a more stringent test than the existing test for a company to go into administration, which only requires the court to be satisfied that it would be reasonably likely that administration would achieve that aim. The Act provides an additional time-limited qualification to this, so that for the period ending 30th of September 2020 only, the monitor only needs to confirm that the moratorium would be likely to result in the rescue of the company as a going concern, absent any worsening of its financial position for reasons relating to COVID-19. 
The moratorium comes into force as soon as those documents are filed with the court, or from the 1st of October 2020, on the date of the relevant court order. There is no requirement for a company to notify creditors in advance, so it may be that a creditor will know nothing of the company's intention to enter into a moratorium until the moratorium period has begun. Once the moratorium has come into force, the independent monitor must notify every creditor whose claim he is aware of. Where the company is a sponsoring employer of a DB scheme, the monitor must also notify the pensions regulator and the PPF. The initial period of the moratorium is 20 business days, but this can be extended by a further 20 business days at the request of the company directors. With creditor consent, the moratorium can last up to 12 months, and with the approval of the court, it can be even longer. A moratorium will come to an end immediately if the company enters into an insolvency procedure. Once the moratorium is in place, existing debts are classified into one of three types. Pre-moratorium debts where there is a payment holiday, pre-moratorium debts where there is no payment holiday, and moratorium debts. Pre-moratorium debts are those which arose before the start of the moratorium or which stem from an obligation entered into before the start of the moratorium. Moratorium debts are debts which arise during a moratorium but are not linked to an obligation entered into before the start of the moratorium. The classification affects whether the company is required to pay the debt during the moratorium period and also the priority given to it following the end of moratorium, including as part of a restructuring plan. Only pre-moratorium debts where there is no payment holiday and moratorium debts are required to be paid during a moratorium. All other pre-moratorium debts are subject to a payment holiday, meaning that they do not have to be paid during the moratorium and no action can be taken to enforce non-payment. It is not entirely clear from the drafting of the legislation how different types of pension debts would be classified. The list of pre-moratorium debts where there is no payment holiday includes a contribution to an occupational pension scheme. Our view is that this would include ongoing DC contributions attributable to members in active service. However, it would not include any deficit repair contributions, nor a Section 75 debt. Following the Nortel case, deficit repair contributions and Section 75 debts would, in our view, be classed as pre-moratorium debts where there is a payment holiday, as they arise from obligations entered into before the start of the moratorium period. If a Section 75 debt was triggered during a moratorium, we do not consider that this would lead to it being treated as a moratorium debt, given that it arose from an obligation which was entered into before the start of the moratorium period. However, it is important to note that the legislation is not explicit on this point, and it has not yet been tested. One final point to mention is that where a company enters insolvency proceedings or proposes a CVA within 12 weeks of the end of a moratorium, moratorium debts and certain pre-moratorium debts, including ongoing pension contributions for active members, will be given so-called super priority on a winding up, ranking ahead of all other claims except for certain fees and expenses. For any scheme which is receiving deficit repair contributions or has an outstanding Section 75 debt, this could reduce the overall recovery available to the scheme, as other debts are promoted in the priority order to rank above those held by the pension scheme. Similarly, if a restructuring plan is proposed within 12 weeks of the ending of the moratorium, that plan cannot compromise moratorium debts or priority pre-moratorium debts unless the relevant creditor agrees. I will now hand over to Glenn, who will explain more about the new restructuring plan. Thank you, Catherine. As Catherine mentioned, 
The restructuring moratorium is only an interim measure. It provides a breathing space for other, more permanent restructuring options to be explored. For a company in financial difficulty, one of these options might be reaching consensual deals with its creditors. However, that's not always possible, and a formal process may be required to impose a compromise on creditors. Before the new Act came into force, the main formal rescue processes available to a company in financial difficulty were either an administration or a company voluntary arrangement under the Insolvency Act, or a scheme of arrangement under the Companies Act. All of these processes have been retained under, under the new law and will continue to be used by companies in distress. However, there is now one additional rescue tool in the toolbox. That is the so-called restructuring plan. And in the next 15 minutes or so, I propose to explain what that is and how it might interact with a defined benefit pension scheme. First of all, I will explain the key features of the new process. In essence, the purpose of the new restructuring plan is to help a company experiencing financial difficulties to reach a compromise or some other arrangement with its creditors to either remove or alleviate that financial difficulty. Like a company voluntary arrangement and a scheme of arrangement, the magic in the tool is its ability to bind dissenting or non-participating creditors or shareholders, provided that specified statutory criteria are satisfied. The new restructuring plan has been modelled on the already established scheme of arrangement process. As a result, from a procedural perspective, the pathway to a restructuring plan is very similar to that for a scheme. However, there are some important substantive differences, as I'll explain. The first difference lies in the conditions for proposing a restructuring plan. With a scheme of arrangements, there is no requirement for the company to be in financial difficulty, whereas for a restructuring plan, it's necessary that both the company has encountered or is likely to encounter financial difficulties, affecting its ability to carry on as a going concern, and a compromise with creditors, members, or any class of them is proposed for the purpose of eliminating, reducing, preventing, or mitigating the effects of any of these financial difficulties. Assuming that these conditions are satisfied, it's open to the employer company, or indeed any creditor or member of the company, or a liquidator or administrator if one has been appointed, to propose a restructuring plan to address the financial difficulty. For example, a plan that might involve creditors or certain creditors being paid less than they would otherwise be entitled to receive and releasing the company from its obligations to pay the balance. Or a proposal that some of the debts are written off in return for a share in the equity in the company, a so-called debt for equity swap. Once the plan has been drawn up, as for a scheme of arrangement, there are four key stages that must be followed before it can be implemented. I will summarise these briefly. The first step is a notice to the affected parties, outlining what will be proposed in the formal plan documentation that will be lodged with the court. 
as well as notifying the affected parties of the plan and its purpose, the notice must inform the parties of the proposed constitution of the classes of creditors and members who will be asked to vote on the plan. This is so that the affected parties have an opportunity to make representations about the proposed classes when the court is determining whether or not to convene the meetings at which the plan will be voted upon. I will return to class issues later when I talk about how a restructuring plan might impact a defined benefit pension scheme. The second step is the initial court hearing known as the convening hearing, at which the court is asked to order the convening of the meetings of members, creditors or classes of them to vote on the proposed plan. At this hearing, the court will address any disputes as to the proposed constitution of the classes for voting purposes. The third step is the meetings of creditors and members or classes of them in which the plan is voted upon. For the plan to be approved, it must be approved by at least 75% by value of those voting in each class. Unlike a scheme, there is no requirement for the plan to be approved by a majority in number in each class as well. And if the plan is approved by the requisite majorities, the fourth and final step in the process is a second court hearing at which the court is asked to exercise its discretion to sanction the plan. If it does so, the plan will become binding on all those affected and who had the opportunity to vote, irrespective of whether and how they voted. When it comes to the sanctioning of a restructuring plan, there is one other important difference between a plan and a scheme. In the case of a restructuring plan, the court has a discretion to sanction the plan even where there is an affected class that has not voted in favour of it. This is the so-called cross-class cramdown. This is a powerful new feature of the new plan procedure that's intended to help address issues with holdout creditors. That is, creditors who may be better off under the plan but who are holding out for a better proposal. The court can exercise its discretion to sanction a plan against the wishes of, dissent, of a dissenting class where, first, it is satisfied that if the plan were to be sanctioned, none of the members of the dissenting class would be any worse off than in the event of the relevant alternative. And the relevant alternative is defined as whatever the court considers would be most likely to occur for the company if the plan were not sanctioned. And secondly, the plan has been agreed by a class of creditors or members who would receive a payment or have a genuine economic interest in the company in the event of that relevant alternative occurring. The new Act does not elaborate further, so we will have to wait to see how this discretion will be exercised by the courts in practice. I hope that gives you a sufficient flavour for the key features of the restructuring plan. Next, I will briefly explore how a restructuring plan might impact a defined benefit pension scheme. Providing definitive views is challenging, but I would like to provide some preliminary thoughts and insights. One of the reasons it's challenging is because the new law contains very few provisions dealing expressly with pension schemes. In fact, as Mark mentioned, given the rapid pace at which the legislation was rushed through Parliament to help mitigate the impacts of COVID-19, it might have contained no provisions for pension schemes at all, had it not been for pensions industry lobbying and debate arising when the bill was passing through the House of Lords. Thanks to that, the Act does at least contain provision for the pensions regulator and the board of the Pension Protection Fund, the Pensions Lifeboat, 
to be notified of any proposed restructuring plan where the plan company is an employer of a defined benefit pension scheme. And separate regulations provide that the board of the PPF may exercise the pension scheme trustees' creditor rights. Most of these rights are exercisable in addition to the rights of the trustees, except for the right to vote at the creditors' meeting. That right is exercisable by the PPF to the exclusion of the trustees. However, there is a requirement for the PPF to consult with the trustees before voting. Therefore, the pension stakeholders should at least receive notice of any proposed restructuring plan. And if the plan seeks to affect the scheme's rights, the PPF will have an opportunity to vote on the plan after consulting with the pension scheme trustees. While this is fairly clear, there are several other key features that are less clear because they're not specifically addressed in the new law. I will touch on just a few of these. The first question is whether a restructuring plan is capable of compromising a debt due to a pension scheme. Looking purely at the new plan law, the answer to this question is almost certainly yes, it is. And this is because there is no specific carve out for pensions debts. However, in practical terms, there are several other big issues that are likely to feed into whether an employer company is likely to attempt to use the plan to compromise a pensions debt. One of these is whether or not the proposed compromise could provide grounds for regulatory action to be taken under the pensions moral hazard regime. This is something that employer companies and their directors should be particularly alive to in light of the Pensions Bill 2020 that's working its way through Parliament at the moment. As covered in one of our earlier law casts, that bill proposes to significantly expand the current moral hazard regime and to introduce a range of new offences and enhance penalties for persons involved in the avoidance of pension scheme debts and conduct risking scheme benefits. Therefore, as Baroness Duke neatly put it in the House of Lords, what might be lawful action under the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Bill may invite criminal sanctions under the Pension Scheme Bill. This may prove to be enough to deter many employer companies from using a restructuring plan to compromise pensions debts. Nevertheless, there remains a risk of an employer company seeking to use the new procedure to compromise pensions debts as part of a broader restructuring initiative. If this does arise in practice, there will be many other technical issues to iron out. For example, will the pension scheme be in a class of its own or lumped together in a class with other unsecured creditors? If the scheme is in a class of its own, naturally it will have more leverage when it comes to voting on the plan than if it is merely one member among many in a class. Although, as I mentioned earlier, even then, there is still the prospect of a dissenting class cramdown. The new law does not prescribe how the classes of creditors and members should be constituted for a restructuring plan. If the courts adopt a similar approach to that adopted in the context of schemes, in terms of class formation, the guiding principle will be that creditors or members should only form part of the same class if their rights are not so dissimilar as to make it impossible for them to consult together with a view to their common interest. This raises the interesting question of whether a pension scheme should be treated as a separate class 
because of the wider considerations faced by trustees and the pension protection fund when faced with this type of decision making. For example, the PPF's consideration of PPF drift, that is, its consideration of the potential additional cost to the PPF of the scheme carrying on as a result of the employer's rescue, but entering into the PPF at a later date when it costs more to compensate members because more members have retired and more have received pension increases. And then there is the question of how the trustees claim will be valued for voting purposes. Unlike a CVA proposal, a restructuring plan will not trigger a contingent Section 75 debt. This provides a degree of uncertainty as to what level of vote the scheme should have when voting on a plan. Although we would expect the PPF to argue that the scheme should vote at the level of the Section 75 debt on the basis that this is a debt that would crystallise in, in the event of the relevant alternative to the plan occurring, i.e. an insolvency process. And finally, there is the question of whether a court would exercise its discretion to sanction a plan that the PPF has voted against, whether as part of an approving class or a dissenting class. The issues here are complex and beyond the scope of this law cast, except to highlight two relevant considerations. The first is that a court is highly unlikely to sanction a plan if it can be shown that it is unlawful in some respect. Therefore, if one could demonstrate that the proposed plan would be unlawful under pensions moral hazard laws, it might be possible to persuade a court not to sanction it. The second issue arises from the fact that a restructuring plan will not trigger a PPF assessment period in respect of the scheme. This is because it is not a qualifying insolvency event for the purposes of the PPF entry rules. This raises the possibility of scheme members being worse off than in an alternative insolvency process, particularly if the level of funding in the scheme is below PPF compensation levels. If this scenario were to arise, it would certainly provide a basis for arguing that the court should not exercise its, dis its discretion to sanction the plan. What's not clear, though, is how much weight a court would place on this. It may take the view that it should only be concerned with the financial outcome for the scheme as a whole and not the position of individual members. The bottom line is that there are many technical issues that will be up for grabs as the new restructuring plan begins to be used in practice. Without wishing to speculate too much, personally, I suspect that a combination of the technical issues combined with the increasingly stringent regulatory regime around defined benefit pension schemes will drive most employer companies wishing to achieve a pensions compromise to seek to do this consensually via consultation with the pension stakeholders and taking into account the PPFs and the regulators restructuring criteria. That said, I can see the threat of a restructuring plan being used as a tool to get the parties to the table and to encourage them to reach a deal on a consensual basis. And on that note, I will hand over to Mark. Thanks very much, Glenn. As well as the permanent changes covered by Catherine and Glenn, the Act introduces some temporary measures, principally a prohibition on the service of statutory demands the issue of winding up petitions and the making of winding up orders until 1st of October 2020 and the suspension of wrongful trading in that period. These provisions will have a draconian effect on the ability of landlords and suppliers to put pressure on tenants and counterparties to pay outstanding rent and invoices or indeed trustees to press for payment of unpaid contributions. 
This is an extremely debtor-friendly provision, which is intended to give a number of companies breathing space to start to make profits after lockdown without fear of facing a winding up petition. However, for all creditors of companies, including trustees of a DB pension scheme, this represents a significant challenge, as it arguably removes any pressure on their counterparty to pay until October 2020. And the provision really doesn't sit that comfortably with the requirements of, for example, scheme funding documents such as the schedule of contributions. All the above said, the measures in the Act do have some potential positives for DB scheme trustees. Foremost among those is that the provisions are designed to promote the rescue of companies and businesses and ensure that viable businesses are able to survive the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. If a viable sponsoring employer is able to remain in business, scheme members are likely to benefit from the survival of the employer in the long term. But the new measures do also give rise to some risks for trustees. As the Act is designed to provide protection and support to struggling businesses, one downside for trustees of defined benefit pension schemes is that, as an unsecured creditor, the scheme may find its negotiating position weakened and the options for taking action against the sponsoring employer when it, when it is in distress more limited. In particular, if a company makes use of a moratorium, one of the key risks which trustees should watch out for is that the position of the sponsoring employer could well deteriorate further during that period. During the moratorium, trustees will have limited options for recourse against the sponsoring employer in order to protect the interests of the scheme's members. Trustees will really need to understand their powers and the strength of their position so that they are ready to take any action prior to the moratorium beginning. So what can trustees do to manage and mitigate these risks? Well, in order to ensure that the risk is limited as far as possible, it would be sensible to engage with the sponsoring employer's directors and the monitor to discuss the proposed rescue of the company and ensure that the interests of the pension scheme are considered in the rescue plans. Access to current information is critical to trustees' assessment of any proposal and how to react. So having access to contemporaneous information, such as management accounts, revised business plans, etc., and sense the type of information that would be provided to secured lenders will help ensure that trustees are well appraised of any plans. In all likelihood, trustees will need to seek advice on the effect of the proposed rescue on the pension scheme and try and negotiate improved terms if possible. If trustees find themselves in a situation where a moratorium or a restructuring plan is proposed, they are likely to seek early engagement with the pensions regulator and the PPF. As Glenn mentioned, one of the features of the new Act is that the PPF will exercise the scheme's vote in a restructuring plan to the exclusion of the trustees. So how will it exercise that vote? Both the regulator and the PPF have restructuring criteria or principles that they will apply when faced with a restructuring proposal. In my view, those criteria don't fit a restructuring plan as well as, say, a CVA, not least because neither of the new measures discussed by Catherine and Glenn would be an insolvency event for the purposes of the pensions legislation, and so would not trigger a Section 75 debt or a PPF assessment period. For example, in a CVA proposal, one of the PPS criteria is that the insolvency of the employer must be inevitable, such that absent the restructuring, the scheme would go into a PPF assessment period. For a restructuring plan, the gateway requirement in the legislation is that the company has encountered or is likely to encounter financial difficulties that are affecting or will or may affect 
its ability to carry on business as a going concern. That is a much lower threshold. And we'll just have to wait and see what the PPF publishes by way of specific criteria for these new tools. In our last lawcast, we talked about the pension schemes bill. And I just want to touch on the fact that, as Glenn alluded to, many of the provisions in the new Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act appear to be in direct conflict with some of those in the pension schemes bill. At a very high level, the pension scheme bill seems, seeks to enhance the pensions regulator's power and ensure greater protection for pension schemes. As things stand, the new criminal offences introduced under the Pension Schemes Bill, such as the offence of avoidance of employer debt and the offence of conduct risking accrued scheme benefits, do not sit well with the new insolvency protection provisions we have outlined above. It remains to be seen if further amendments may be tabled in relation to the Bill's new criminal sanctions. It therefore remains a case of watch this space to see whether the interaction between the new insolvency regime and the strengthening of the pension regulator's powers and oversight is clarified as the Pension Schemes Bill progresses through Parliament. I think the key takeaway for trustees in relation to the new Act is one of preparedness. Firstly, understand the powers you have under the scheme and other documents. Whilst a moratorium or restructuring plan is not an insolvency event for the purposes of pensions legislation, and so won't trigger a Section 75 debt, some scheme rules may provide the trustees with the power to trigger a winding up of the scheme in certain situations. Understanding the nature of the power means you're prepared. For example, would triggering a winding up result in a better outcome for members? Or at the very least, having the power to threaten triggering a wind up in order to improve the outcome for members through improved terms. Secondly, is there security in place? For example, a guarantee to support the sponsoring employer's covenant. If so, you should review any events which trigger the ability to enforce the security, as it's unlikely that the triggers will cover a moratorium or a restructuring plan as their new procedures. So the terms may well need to be amended. Any security won't be enforceable, though, during a moratorium without the permission of the court, which we think is extremely unlikely to be granted. Thirdly, keep in close contact with the sponsoring employer in order to understand their financial position. This will allow you to be in the best position to receive early information about any potential moratorium or restructuring plan and give you the best chance to be on the front foot rather than in a position of having to react and scramble. I wanted just to end by setting out a few practical tips for trustees to be thinking about if faced with this sort of situation. And I suppose it's not limited simply to these new two procedures. It would apply in any insolvency or distressed employer situation. Firstly, consider and carefully manage any conflicts of interest that exist or are likely to arise for trustees who have duties to the employer company as a result of being officers or employees, as well as being trustees. Consider whether it would be beneficial to appoint an independent professional trustee who is experienced in such matters to the board. Do you have a full suite of documents, relevant scheme rules and any other documents, for example, security? Get hold of them and familiarise yourself with their key provisions and the powers. Ensure you've got access to payroll information and a way of paying pensioners that does not depend on an employer. Trustees could consider setting up a separate bank account that contains funds covering, say, three months of payroll so that pensioners can continue to be paid even if the employer's systems become unavailable or disrupted as a result of an insolvency event. 
identify all the employers in the scheme, including those who are statutory employers responsible for funding the scheme's liabilities. If the scheme is a multi-employer scheme, trustees should know whether it's a last man standing scheme or if there's a partial wind-up rule. Engage with the pensions regulator and the PPF. They're experienced in these situations and can help trustees to plan for an insolvency situation. They can also help in negotiations with the employer company. Agree with the employer, the regulator and the PPF a strategy for communicating with members and media. And finally, ensure that you have the right advisors in place, including in relation to covenant, financial and legal issues. So, all that remains for me to say is to thank you for staying with us. I hope you found this a useful overview of the new Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 as has hopefully become apparent, is that this is a complex new piece of legislation. Time will tell how much the new tools will be used or whether companies and their advisors consider the existing tools in the insolvency practitioner's toolbox are sufficient. The contact details for all three of us are set out here. Please do feel free to get in touch with us if you'd like to discuss anything we've mentioned in more detail, or of course, you can contact your usual CMS contacts. Thank you and goodbye.